Good evening, Internet, and welcome to Episode 9 of This Heretical Life. I am your host, Brian Thomas, and as always, I'm joined by my very handsome, very Catholic co-host and brother-in-law, Adam Leggett. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming back for Episode 9, everyone. I wouldn't exactly call the end of Episode 8 a cliffhanger, but it's definitely Part 1 of a two-part um, two-part conversation as Adam and I had a, uh, a talk about, had a talk about, that makes no sense. We'll go with it anyway. <laughs> had a talk about the just war doctrine as presented in the Catholic uh, catechesis. So last week, Adam kind of walked us through sort of the first half of that, which talked about sort of the parameters the just war theory imposes on those governmental powers that would go to war and then this evening, we are going to talk about, and I'm going to kind of lead the discussion on the second half of that, which is how a government or how an entity should conduct itself after the war has been joined. So whereas the first one was sort of a, almost like a checklist of you have to make sure these things exist or, or these uh, you have to make sure your situation is just so before you go into war. Um, these next three or four points kind of, a couple of them are kind of collapsed onto each other, uh, are about what the just war theory demands of a power that is already at war. So, um, that gives you a little bit of introduction. Anything else to say, Adam, before we jump back into this? We kind of did most of our preamble last episode. Yeah, I think so. I think we're ready to just kind of dive in. All right. So, uh, for those of you who are following along in your Catholic church catechism at home, uh, this begins in paragraph uh, 2312 of the Catholic um, Catholic uh, Catechism. And it says, The church and human reason both assert the permanent validity of the moral law during armed conflict. The mere fact that war has regrettably broken out does not mean that everything becomes licit between the warring parties. Now, that one's, that's kind of, the, that's the first one, but it's also kind of, um, it's almost like an umbrella principle for what comes next. Sure. Uh, basically saying that just because the conditions have been met, that makes war. Now, you used the term last episode, morally justified. Um, I would probably use the term permissible. And, and I may be splitting hairs. Those two things may mean exactly the same thing sure. in some people's minds. But um, I would say that this when these conditions are met, making war permissible for a government. Uh, that doesn't mean that once war has started, it's just like a, a giant free-for-all. Sure. Um, sure. The, uh, the idea that, um, oh, what's the phrase? Just have it. The validity of moral law um, still exists, which I think is an important concept because uh, I can think of several examples uh, where otherwise very moral or at least seemingly very moral people have taken the uh, taken the the angle that once war has broken out it's kind of a win at all costs kind of scenario sure. um, you know carpet bomb the sand until it glows in the dark which does not make scientific sense at all but is a thing that a very serious politician once said not long ago right. Um, killing the families of uh, terrorists or suspected war criminals, even dipping bullets in pig's blood as you shoot down um, 
as you shoot down your enemies who are of a certain religious group that makes that sort of thing particularly detestable. Um, I don't know about you. I would consider all of these things as pretty much just setting aside moral law during an armed conflict. Do you, do you agree or am I overreacting? I might be overreacting. As I said, last episode, I lean pacifist on it. Sure. Um, I don't, I don't know. Like I, I struggle a little bit because there have been, uh, commonly uh, granted, this does not make something right. Uh, but commonly accepted, and this kind of gets into one of the points later on, but there have been kind of commonly accepted rules of engagement um, that both sides practice indiscriminately, or they seem to have in most wars throughout history. So like, uh, you know, if you take a city, you can take the, you know, you can take food or, or whatever, you know, that yeah. from that place. Well, normally that would be considered stealing, you know, like if, if you just roll into yeah, a city yeah. and take food so you can feed your men or whatever. But most most cultures, Christian and otherwise, throughout history have recognized or have seemed to practice that, you know, things like that are acceptable. You know, it, it, not gross violence necessarily, like torture or rape or things like that, but um, just doing what's necessary to survive. Um, but then you might. Uh, so you're saying, so you're saying that in times of war, socialism is okay, is what that seems to be. <laughs> I'm saying I don't know. I'm saying I'm not sure. I'm not sure entirely how this rule applies for, let's say, you know, reconnaissance and spying, right? Like if you yeah. know, telling, or, or you know, like, let's say you're. This kind of gets into you know, moral philosophy, but, you know, if you're a German family that doesn't think it's okay to slaughter Jews and you lie to keep Jews safe in your home, well, normally, under most circumstances, deception, lying would be considered morally wrong, right? Um, Yeah. But the grave circumstances, most, I, I think most people would argue, not all, I've read people that wouldn't, but most people would argue that Somehow it's different. You know, you can argue the different ways that it might be different, but somehow that's different than just, you know, lying so you can pass your law exam, you know, and cheating. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like right. there, so there, there is. I a, didn't look, look, I told you that in confidence <laughs> and I also told you it wasn't me. It was a friend. Uh, so let's just. I'm not a priest. I'm not bound by any okay. kind of, you know. Okay. Um, like future members of the bar out there. That was a joke. I have never done anything. And I don't know of anybody who's done anything. Otherwise, I would have reported them. Because knowing and not reporting is an honor code violation. And I don't play that way. So. Yes. We're going to have to edit that Good, part. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well done. Tactfully done, Brian. That uh, sounded convincing. Yes. Um, yeah. Like, that make, I, no, I agree that with sense? you. Like, I'm, and I'm not saying that – I'm not saying I know which – things change i'm just saying like i'm not sure how this gets played out practically because or or, i mean maybe maybe it is always wrong to lie or to you know confiscate goods or to you know whatever i'm not saying it is or it isn't i'm just throwing that out there as something as a question that i had when I, i read through this i was like okay well yeah yeah moral law isn't the validity of it doesn't change so how, how does that work? You know, certain things that 
we consider morally illicit uh, during peace, you know, we, we do practice during war. Some of those things are definitely frowned upon, like torture or rape. Um, but then some of them don't seem to be frowned upon as much, like confiscation of goods or, you know, spying and kind of some intrigue there, whether it's, you know, bald-faced lies or, or whatever. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Well, like, uh, just to push the social the socialism joke a tad bit further, sure. could you argue then that that's that one reason um, that sort of forced – uh, confiscation of food or, or even in some cases I know like probably not as with not probably not as uh, regularly as it's supposed to be but when that happens there's supposed to be some sort of compensation paid to whoever it is you're taking the food from right mm -hmm. it's not just supposed to be you take it but you you I'm doing air quotes here internet audience you buy it from them mm -hmm. forcefully um, or otherwise yeah yeah it's like look we're gonna we have to have it, so we're going to buy it from you, whether you like it or not. Eminent domain, all that kind of thing. Right. Um, so maybe, maybe appropriation of goods and property, to an extent, for the common good, is not in and of itself a violation of moral law. And that's that's a fair point. It may not be. I, I don't. All those examples, I'm not sure. I'm just saying that, like on the surface. It was a. It was yeah. just a question. It's like, okay, well, I'm not sure. No, exactly, I, I think it's a good question. Not exactly sure how that applies or how that works. And I, yeah. I mean, you could you could argue argue the same thing. Uh, Dr. Peter Kraft, he's a philosopher at Boston College. Um, like he he would argue that the midwives in Exodus, right, that at the very least are deceptive about uh, why they're not killing. Oh yeah, yeah. you know firstborn sons or and during the Holocaust families that were protecting Jews that that's it's not just an allowed evil right but that they're actually doing something good you know so like sure it's, it's not the same as a lie because a lie is intended um, you know to deceive to harm someone mm -hmm. um, so like but again people argue about how those hairs are supposed to be split all I'm saying is uh, it would be interesting to kind of hear hear a, a church theologian or somebody that has you know studied a lot on what just war is and how all this works um, give examples of why you know some things are not considered wrong you know and some are I think another example of that is uh, is Rahab in the Old Testament who you know mm -hmm. hid spies who lied about them who preserved their life and who was not just not condemned for that but was rewarded for her dedication to preserving their lives to to uh, you know aligning herself and in a way it was aligning herself with the one true god rather than with the gods of her canaanite neighbors and, and upbringing sure so i do think i think you raise a really good point like and that almost goes to a deeper question, like, what is the deepest, truest moral law? Sure. Um, what is which what I, is the first thing? It's a uh, you have to keep first things first and second things second. And if you if you put second things first, right, as the highest priority, then the first things yeah. don't don't work. Yeah, I and mean, if you put second things first, then you get called out because you can't just run from home plate to second base. Exactly. Got to go to first place. Yeah. Got to go to it, first base it, first. Hey. 
That's how it works. Learned that the hard way. And who who is on who's on first? I uh, what? Let's not. Okay, sorry. I thought about going there, but decided not to. <laughs> and you did. Um, and you know, talking about keeping first things first. If you if you want to take it down to a real basic level, you just take it to the to the two great commandments: love the Lord yeah. thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and and love your neighbor as yourself. Sure. So, on the one hand, you know, forcefully appropriating goods from um, other people is not seemingly loving them as yourself. But if you know that, you know, if that's necessary to achieve this, this other goal and you're not, and you are you know, you are paying them, uh, you are using it to feed them mm -hmm. as much as you are, you know, to feed everybody else. Um, then are you, are you perhaps not indeed, maybe you're not um, breaking the truest moral law uh, in those in those types of situations. Sure. And I think I think the question you asked about this gets not not directly answered, but you start to see an answer take place or take shape. I should say you start to see an answer take shape when you look at the next point, which is that um, non-combatants, wounded soldiers, and prisoners must be respected and treated humanely. And I think that points towards that you know, love your neighbor as yourself, that mm. war does not just give you this blank check for murder and destruction, right. but that, um, you have to, and I may be overstressing this, but you have to care for them the same way you would care for, you know, it was your own people that were, uh, that you were coming across rather than, you know, the, uh, the non-combatant counterparts of, uh, of your enemies. Sure. And, uh, and this is one thing we touched on this a little bit last episode, but as much as the technological advancements in, in warfare have permitted a country to wage war from a distance without putting as many of their own uh, soldiers' lives uh, in the line of fire, I do think you have to worry about how does it affect this one? Uh, like when you go to that extent to keep your own soldiers out of harm's way, are you consequently putting yourself or taking yourself out of the picture to the extent that you can't treat non-combatants and wounded soldiers and prisoners um, with respect and dignity? Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair question so and i don't know and you you'd think and maybe these advancements are there and i just don't know about them or, or haven't heard them talked about as much but if you can be that effective at killing people from a distance can you be effective at helping people from a distance mm -hmm. which i think is is sort of fundamentally like a philosophical question and the answer is no i think true help and i think true um respect and true dignity afforded to other people requires proximity of some sure. sort. Sure. And um, I mean, maybe this is just like crazy philosopher Brian talking, which is possible. Crazy philosopher Brian talks a lot. But I think as much as 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 much as I, I despise the idea of putting you know, my neighbors in harm's way, 
or justifying that by saying something as crass as well. You put on a uniform. You hear this like in every movie, every wartime movie ever spoken by somebody who may be a good guy, but they're being a heel right at that very moment when they say something like, you put on the uniform. He knew the risks. Um, but part of that, part of me thinks a little bit of that is true in that that call, if we're going to hold up, as we tend to do in, in American culture, uh, for good or for bad, hold up the the kind of the vocation of soldier as in a in a non-religious way, kind of sacred, right? Like it, people who put on that uniform are dedicating themselves to something greater than themselves, to a greater good, to someone call it a higher calling. But again, I don't use that in like a religious term. Sure. Um, then there, I mean, we, we just sort of acknowledge that there are these risks that come with it. That, that's part of the, the honor do that uniform is that putting it on, you're opening yourself up to, to certain risks and certain dangers, including you're including putting your life in risk and putting your life in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and I, again, leaning pacifist and my pacifistic tendencies are probably going to come out stronger in this episode than in the last one. Um, like, I don't like that. I, I don't like there being people that are my neighbors, um, that get put into harm's way. Um, I, you know, that, uh, while I admire, uh, the courage of those who, who truly do enter into that vocation with that selfless kind of dedication, I don't like it that they have to do that. I don't, I don't like the instances in which they're, they're being sent out. All that being said, Shouldn't shouldn't that mean that if we have to choose between as a nation, I'm not like trying to put any specific person in harm's way here, but like as a nation, we have this segment of our population dedicated to warfare. So shouldn't we say that morally, in a sense, as much as war can be better than anything, morally it's better to put in harm's way those people who have accepted that as their vocation, who have even chosen that as their vocation, than it is to put in harm's way non-combatants, wounded, um, even even people from and, the other side. I mean, those are yeah, in this case, yeah, especially like, people from the other side. Yeah, yeah, especially from the other side. Like again, again, my my tendency is to say, well, let's not put either of those people in harm's way. Let's not put our soldiers in harm's way. Sure. Let's not put, uh, you know, these non-combatants, well, these foreign non-combatants you, in harm's and way. And you should never either unnecessarily, which we talked about last week. Uh, yeah, we absolutely did. Yeah, so so unnecessarily neither should be. But yeah. but I, I get what you're saying, that in the event that cause is just for war, um, and it is unavoidable, and all the rules are met that we discussed last week. Then, mm-hmm. would it not be better than yes? I, I get what you're saying. So, so when we when we talk about these advances that put fewer and fewer soldiers in harm's way, often what we're talking about, I think, is more and more license for um, for governments to enact violence against foreign entities without having to call it war, you know, uh, as sort of a way to not have to deal with the things we talked about last week, Mm -hmm. as far as having to answer those hard questions in order to justify or permit 
uh, the steps they're taking. So on the one hand, I think these technological advancements make it easier and easier to avoid the things we talked about last week and and uh, whether you whether the thing you're doing is actually justified or not or permitted or not. And second, I think it it makes it so much easier to skip over this this one of how you conduct yourself when when conflict has been joined and sort of gives you this easy out on not having to worry about the non-combatants on the other side because technically you're not really there. You're just you're 30,000 feet above it in the air and you're not even 30,000 feet in the air above it. You're in a trailer in Reno, Nevada or something. Anyway, that's a soapbox for me. You can pull me off of it anytime you want. But um, again, because I think this just, we're looking at basic human dignity and decency, which is just really, really difficult to give to someone when you're not there with that person. Mm -hmm. um, whereas we have made it so much easier to dish out destruction on people when you're not there in person, sure. be it drones or be it even like in non con in non war kind of scenarios, like social media, like it's so easy to be a jerk to people mm. on Twitter or Facebook. I know because like I've done it not recently. Not re I gave that up for Lent, but um, <laughs> being a jerk on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go back to it after Easter, after Pascha, but yeah, yeah, for Lent. Um, but it's it's just easier. It's so much easier to be cruel to someone for from sure. a distance. For sure. Um, and it's not it's not so much that it's hard to be nice to someone from a distance because like we can say happy birthday to people on Facebook or Twitter or like thoughts and prayers or something like that. But meaningful to to have our actions reflect the dignity, the depth of dignity in another person. It's just it's difficult. Uh, without presence or without um, a pre-existing like meaningful relationship like um, that is hard to build mm -hmm. without some sense of presence sure. yeah I think and when you think about how wars used to be fought like it was really hard to uh, wound a soldier and not be present enough to give him aid because the only way to wound him was to like stand next to him and stab him for sure um, <laughs> or or you know even in the earlier days of firearms you're lining up like you know a few yards away from him and shooting him and if he falls down well, he's, he's just right there one of y'all are gonna, one line is going to advance at some point or another for sure um so anyway all, part of this is thinking and I, I almost wrote some about this um well i think almost wrote when i was finishing up my undergraduate studies and needed a capstone project, like a thesis, I had a few different options in front of me. And this was one that I thought about going down was sort of revisiting just war theory in light of modern warfare. Mm -hmm. um, but it seemed way too hard and I was trying to get done really quickly. So I didn't. <laughs> yeah. I, um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Finish your, finish your no, I mean like, because because this is the kind of philosophical question that I find to be at the heart of, of this kind of issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to argue with anything you've said. I think it's all true and, and good. Um, and I, I don't want it to seem uh, utilitarian what I'm about to say, but it probably is going to seem that way. I'm not really sure where the balance is. Cause I think, I think if you were to ask, 
um, you know, ask most people why, you know, advances in tools of war are, are made. It's because you want, in theory, you want the quickest resolve because the quickest resolve can often mean the least amount of life lost. Right. Uh, and I'm not saying that that doesn't get just used as an excuse or that, um, you know, like you said, the, the right people, you know, obviously should still not be put in places of, you know, unnecessary risk or, you know, like civilians and women and children and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, like the, the thought of, okay, well, if we can, if we can kill our enemy from a further distance, it means that less people have to die. Because if you get close, people on both sides, more people on both sides are going to die, right? But if you get, and I, I know that I'm not, again, I'm not arguing or saying that, you know, what you've said isn't, isn't true. I'm just saying, I'm not sure where the balance is between saying, okay, we want as quick of a resolve to the conflict as possible, right? That has to be something that weighs on people, you know, due to all the other rules we've talked about. Uh, the the issue of wanting peace, you know, and, and wanting that to be quickly attainable and as quickly as possible, you know. So I, I guess I'm just saying that finding a balance between all this and where we're at right now in history is, I'm sure, really difficult. I mean, e even, if, yeah, even if you yeah. have somebody in a position to push that button or to pull that trigger or so on and so forth that really does care about all the stuff we're talking about, it's got to be really hard, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to judge when, um, you know, when, when you can say that these are combatants and these aren't, have you, have you ever seen American Sniper? I have not seen American Sniper. There's a, there's a scene at the beginning of American Sniper where Bradley Cooper's character is, um, he's doing his job as a sniper and, uh, there's this lady and this little boy that are walking down the street towards their convoy and he doesn't pull the trigger rightfully so I think, but then, uh, she, she commits suicide and kills some of his soldier friends. Right. So like there are places mm. in the world where it's hard to know, like it's really difficult to know who's, sure. who's the enemy and who's a bystander and you know, all that kind of stuff. I've talked to, you know, Vietnam vets before, that said that, you know, which I would argue we should never have been in there in the first place. But, yeah. Um, but all, all that aside, where they said, you know, just walking through a village, you know, you literally never knew who was going to walk outside of a hut and try to kill you. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it could be, uh, it could be, you know, a man dressed in fatigues. Right. Or it could be a 13 year old boy, you know. Yeah. And, and so just that, like, it's messy. War is a messy thing. And, and yeah. I don't want us to, because we're, we hope, you know, we may have people that are, are listening to this that have had to make these kind of decisions. Sure. And we, yeah. we don't, we don't want it to make it seem like to anybody that we're saying that, um, that, oh, this is so simple. If you have to, you know, if you have to be put in a situation where, 
you know, because it's not that simple and it, it really is difficult. And, and, but that's, that's why these things need to be talked about. That's why mm. these rules need to be thrown out there. It needs to add um, another layer or another counterweight to, you know, the, the decisions that we have to make. Or yeah. not personally, yeah. but, the, you know, the people that are in these moments. Um, they're just really, that's really difficult. And sometimes I don't know that there's a perfect answer to the, to the decisions that people have to make in these, oh, no. in these moments. No, I mean, no. it's a, it's a messed up world and, um, and it's not always easy to know, you know, what the, what the right thing to do is. You just, you know, mm. but again, that's why we have to, that's why we have to talk about this. That's why these things have to be addressed and, and brought up. Um, but even, even then it's, it's hard. I'm sure I, I can't imagine having to be in that situation. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I don't mean this, mean for this to, to sound like a, a critique of, of people who, who walk, um, you know, who, who literally walk through lines of fire or put themselves in danger. Mm-hmm. But it's more of, I mean, I'm not trying to critique them. I'm not even really trying to offer a commentary on those people who are in those situations but it's more like you said putting these principles out there but but even just taking a step back or taking several steps back from what should this policeman do in this situation or what should this soldier do when he's faced with this situation i don't know i'm not in that i'm not going to tell him what he should or shouldn't do um you know but this takes several steps back and asks what has that man or that what has that person's society trained him to think Mm -hmm. like what has society impressed upon him as being important as being the considerations it's it's almost like a um a mental emotional even philosophical muscle memory in that moment Mm -hmm. is going to be what makes that decision for sure um you know in, in a a situation like that, they're not always, probably very rarely, afforded time to sit and think through an actual diagnosis of the situation sure. or uh, an actual analysis of what's going on at that moment and the decision they make. Uh, there was a um, there was a, a novel by uh, by Stephen James, one of his and his Patrick Bowers series. Uh, I forget which one it was maybe the queen, but, but where he actually talked about and had a, had done a lot of research on how our brains in like high stress pressure situations, our brain will make the decision before we've actually finished processing all the information, Mm -hmm. all the sensory input. And so in a sense, our, our, there's this reflex or reaction that goes into motion faster than we can even really fully on like a cognitive level process what's being put into our brains. And that's like a form of muscle memory. That's what have you been taught to value. And that is what's going to make that decision in that moment. Yeah. Malcolm, Um, Malcolm Gladwell has a really good book on that called blink. Blink. Yeah. Yeah. I have not read it, but I've read some snippets from it and, and seen some stuff about it. Yeah. It's, it's really good. Um, so what we're talking about is that, that big picture, like, you know, what, when that, when you put that soldier in that situation, what, what have you taught him to value and to think of as important in that moment? 
when when he has to make that decision. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think a good uh, a good middle ground, you know, finding a place where these two ideas merge of very macro view and very micro view is the third point. So why don't you um, why don't you read that and kind of explain or talk talk, talk about that for just a second. Yeah, uh, yeah, we kind of got hung up on that second one there for a little bit, but uh, the third one, um, actions deliberately contrary to the laws of nations and to its universal principles are crimes, as are the orders that command such uh, such actions. Blind obedience does not suffice to excuse those who carry them out. Thus, the extermination of a people, nation, or ethnic minority must be condemned as a mortal sin. One is morally bound to resist orders that command genocide. So you can't you can't just use the I was just following orders line. That doesn't work. Right. Mm. Yeah. No, it does not. It does not work when you stand before God okay. <laughs> or the Pope, I guess. In this. <laughs> yeah. That. Um. I was listening to a podcast the other day. Um. And they were talking about a number of things. Not all of which I agreed with. It was a. Uh, a friend of mine at law school sent it to me. He's like, this is liberal leaning, but it's really good. And it was really good. But I also talked to him the next day and I was like, liberal leaning was an understatement. <laughs> it's like, they're not leaning liberal. They're way over there. <laughs> like, this is the liberal land and we live in it. Um, but uh, they talked about in one part of the podcast about reading the transcripts, uh, reading some transcripts from the Nuremberg trials um, after World War II. And in particular, um, talked about reading the transcripts of the trials um, of judges, uh, not the transcripts the judges wrote, but transcripts of the trials in which German judges were being tried for the things that, for orders they gave from the bench, in essence. And, uh, and I have not had a chance, it's something I, after they kind of mentioned it, it's like, I, I would really like to read that. Um, I haven't yet, but one thing they commented on from those transcripts was how the judges were sort of aghast that they were being tried because they're like every ruling we gave was in perfect agreement with like german law like we we did nothing wrong mm -hmm. you know we're just not quite the following orders but like following this the letter of the law that said of course you can send jews to concentration sure. camps of course you can you know uh, murder of course you can uh, invade poland and murder everybody there that's fine laws permitted sure. um and um, and I think that's that's probably like the go-to example um, that we lean on when we talk about blind obedience mm -hmm. um, and its and its consequences uh, is is what was what was perpetrated there and uh, during uh, in Germany and and by Nazi Germany uh, before and during uh, during World War II. Yeah, for sure. um, there is a film. That uh, came out last year that uh, probably not 100% on point with this, but I've heard really good things and want to see uh, called uh, A Hidden Life um, about, I think he was Austrian, who ended up being a, um, just refused, to, he was a pacifist, probably why I want to see it, um, but refused to enlist and go fight in the, the, Nazi, uh, the Nazi army. And um, just a lot, a lot of it's about the pressure he was under from people in his own city, people who agreed with him, like, yeah, Nazis are bad people, mm -hmm. but we're like, but you can't do this. Like, you, you have to go serve in the military. You just, it's what you have to do. You, you're not permitted to say no. Sure. Uh, 
Um, but just the the finality of this last line, one is morally bound to resist orders that command genocide. And you can probably, I would think, broaden that a little bit. Oh, okay. You know, like one is there are other orders that one is morally bound to resist. Sure. I get the feeling it's just because of the the first clause, right? That first sentence or like, <clears> probably not the first, but the first couple the first sentence. It, it seems to give like a an un, like an, an umbrella uh, statement about moral actions and principles, um, and then the last half of the paragraph is just, it's almost like just an example. Like, yeah, okay, and this yeah. is this is one. That makes sense. You know, this is one uh, example of. Yeah. And um, I remember. Well, some of the reading that I did leading up to this that I, I'm hope, I'll probably touch on as we as we get to the end and wrap this up is um, some of the writing from Orthodox <coughs> priests uh, and the like about talking about war and not calling it just war by name, but along those lines and and even talking about early Christians, uh, which I think you mentioned some last episode. Who uh, or you mentioned I think John the Baptist when he spoke to soldiers, didn't tell them to, you know, drop out of the army and go do other things, but um, basically seemed to indicate there was a, a morally, you could be a soldier and pursue moral, mm. uh, for lack of a better word, perfection at the same time, right. but they weren't 100% at odds with each right. other. Um, and in this reading, it talks about there were early Christians who who bore arms in, in the pagan Roman army, uh, says for the welfare of society in this world. So, and then I totally forgot where that was going. Oh, I remember now. <laughs> uh, but I do remember reading stories um, even back when I was was um, you know a Baptist minister. I was reading this to teach in like youth group and stuff about soldiers in the Roman army who were Christians who at a certain point were like, no, we can't we can't do that. Mm -hmm. The thing you're asking us to do, we can't do. Right. Um, and there was a great, I think these guys, uh, this group were resisting. I think there was an order to, to offer pagan sacrifices more than it was to you know, go do some moral wrong in the name of Rome. But they just said, no, we, we can't do that. It was a, what was it? It wasn't a legion. I think it was um, a, a century, it's in whatever that, centurion. not a centurion. But it was like, well, it wasn't a centurion, but it was like this whole one group of guys. It was like a hundred men whatever the you call the group of people a centurion is over. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know. Uh, we're all, say what? I said I have no idea. Oh, me either. Uh, but they were all Christians. It was like this one, I'm going to use the word battalion, but it's not the right word, of Christians. Um, and so they just refused. And then just when they were pressed or when the their superiors came to them or like, look, do this or die, um, the phrase that they're recorded as having said was, look, we have swords in our hands, but we cast them down and would rather die uh, for Christ than to offer your sacrifices or shed blood or, or shed your blood. Mm. Um, and then they were they were all martyred. But I, I don't know. I can't think of many and probably uh, there are probably a couple of reasons why in our culture we don't hear this many stories about them. Uh, a couple of reasons come to mind. One, hopefully good, one not so good, um, that we don't hear that many stories, uh, at least I haven't, in American culture about soldiers who um, resisted orders, you know, rather than uh, submitting to something that 
went against uh, laws of nations and to its universal principles. Um, one reason, hopefully, being because we haven't asked people to do that that much. Sure. Um, feel like we probably have sometimes. Um, the other reason probably being that when somebody does that, it's not something that uh, authorities like to have promoted a whole lot. Right. <laughs> hopefully more of the former than the latter. Um, but even like I, I'm this is this is stretching it a tad probably. But even back uh, there's some examples from this administration, but I know there were some during during Nixon's where um, there was uh, I can't remember if it was the Friday massacre or the Saturday massacre where uh, Nixon gave an order for someone in the Justice Department to to do something they knew was like illegal. It's like, no, we, we can't do this. And so he fired them. Uh, and then he go, he went to the next person in line and they wouldn't do it. So he fired them. So I forget how many people he had to go through mm. before he finally found somebody who would do this thing that they all knew to be wrong, morally wrong. Um, but it was, it was kind of along this line. They weren't soldiers and, and it wasn't war, but it was kind of the same principle. Like, no, we're not, you know, we're bound to a higher authority than just you telling us what to do. And then we can't, and that's, I don't know that they were Christians, but but they believed in something bigger than just the word of the president. And so refused to obey and were fired. And he kept going down the line until he eventually found somebody that would do what he wanted to do. Right. Um, I think stories like that uh, maybe are undertold, even whether they're Amer- from American culture or not. I think more of those stories can be a good thing. For sure. For sure. Okay. Um, so what about the fourth point? What, what All right, so the fourth one here, let's see. Every act of war directed to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities or vast areas with their inhabitants is a crime against God and man, which merits firm and unequivocal condemnation. Uh, a danger of modern warfare is that it provides the opportunity to those who possess modern scientific weapons especially atomic, biological, or chemical weapons, to commit such crimes. Uh, We touched a little bit on this one last week, too, I think, towards the end when we talked about uh, Hiroshima and and Nagasaki and and that destruction of whole cities uh, or vast areas with their inhabitants. Um, And and while those two are kind of, I think, the, the ones that our minds can easily go to because they were just sort of, I'm snapping my fingers for those who can't hear sort of like this quick. And it was like just one single mm. bomb in Hiroshima and one single bomb in, in Nagasaki, just that instantaneously. Um, there were other cities that actually uh, I've read were destroyed uh, or, or, or received over the course of the war, far more destructive or far more destruction through continual uh, repetitive bombing. Sure. Um, I, I forget. I forget which cities they were. I want to say Dresden, but I don't. I don't remember that for a fact. Um, but I can't. Well, it was definitely World War Two, like World War One. They didn't have that sort of. Uh, they could drop a bomb, I think, um, from biplanes, but definitely didn't have the capability to just carpet bomb places. For sure. Uh, then like they did in World War II and, and still retain now. Um, and I think one benefit, I guess, uh, I mean, not I guess, one benefit of technological advancements in armament is that you can 
you know, if you're trying, you can, it's going to sound really bad. You can bomb cities more effectively now. <laughs> you sure. don't have to carpet bomb them sure. uh, to achieve a certain goal. Um, and to the point that you can celebrate technological advancements and warfare. I think that, that's, that would be one of them. Um, that you can knock out specific targets with with less collateral damage now than you could in World War II or even in, in Vietnam or, or even even the uh, the Gulf War the the first foray into Iraq okay. or the most recent one. Um, so it's it's a bit of a double edged sword there. Isn't it? Like the danger of modern warfare is that it provides the opportunity to commit such crimes, um, but the I don't know benefit. Uh, it seems like too strong a word almost, but the benefit of modern warfare is that it provides opportunity to not commit such crimes as well. Mm, right. Um, and it's, it's sort of odd today to talk about war because even the things that the conflicts that we recognize in everyday conversation as war, like the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan are not wars like, like Augustine or Augustine. Oh my gosh, I butchered his name. <laughs> that Augustine and, and Thomas Aquinas would have known uh, as war sure. or what what even, you know, um, people in World War II in that era or even afterwards would have recognized as war. So when we talk about it now, it's almost like we're talking about this thing that's complete, not just war, but when we talk about war now, it's almost like we're, we're talking about something that doesn't happen or, or at least is semi-foreign to our American consciousness because what we experience and call war today is so very different than the things that uh, come to mind for me anyway when I read about the Just War Doctrine, sure. if that makes sense. Sure. Hmm. No, yeah, it's, it's a good point. So like how and why do, not why, but how do we apply these principles to what modern conflict looks like in the 21st century? I mean, that, that's a harder question to me, you know. Uh, I, think the, I think these principles are still, like I would be overjoyed. That's too strong a word. I would be very happy. I think it would be a vast improvement on our current foreign uh, policy if every conflict in which the U.S. entangled itself was subject to these principles. Oh, for sure. Um, but at the same time, I can't really tell you what that looks like in 21st century, mm -hmm. you know, foreign conflicts. Um, but I certainly don't think it looks like what we see around us today. Sure. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, Ron, in just a second, uh, I, we'd, I would like you to take a, a minute to talk about all of this briefly like you like you mentioned earlier from kind of an eastern perspective yeah because uh, all this all that we've dealt with so far in the last two episodes have come straight out of the the catechism of the catholic church straight out of straight straight out, out of trying to think of a straight out of compton thing yeah i don't know um but it and I don't. I think it's probably one of those things. I would imagine, anyway, that we we probably both sides do at least largely agree upon, um, but just express it in completely different ways. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe not. You can explain that in just a moment. But I, I would guess so. I could be wrong. Um, but I would like I would like for you to touch on that. Uh, but before we do, why don't we why don't we kind of go to a little bit of a more lighthearted topic? And sure. uh, we we mentioned this talking about this before. But like, if you could pick any like life skill uh, that you could acquire, what would it be, and and why? Okay, so I have actually actually thought about this a lot. Uh, not just because we talked about asking this question earlier, but because I have just thought about this a lot, mostly in the sense of there's always been one thing that if I could have learned how to do it, or even now, if I could, if I knew I could go and apply myself and learn to do this thing and do it well, I would, but I don't think that's very probable at this time. But when I was a kid, like, gosh, when I was like, um, seven in, or eight or nine, um, there was nothing in the world cooler. And still today, there's nothing in the world cooler than the scene in Holiday Inn, which is an old black and white movie for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about. Nothing cooler than the scene where Fred Astaire's character, mm-hmm. um, who was supposed to be dancing a, a doubles routine with one of the love interests in the film, has to go dance solo during this 4th of July celebration. And so he like ends up stuffing his pockets full of fireworks and he goes out and just breaks out this fantastic tap dance routine using the fireworks. That's just, there's nothing cooler than Fred Astaire in a white suit and a star-spangled kerchief and socks dancing while smoking a cigarette and throwing <laughs> fireworks down. Yeah. It is awesome it is amazing it's pretty bad eh? <laughs> i mean i may have or may not have when i was about seven or eight years old tried to recreate that scene <laughs> without firecrackers. i didn't have firecrackers so i just found things we had a wooden floor yeah so I just found things that i could throw down yeah, and would make a loud noise when it hit the floor parents weren't super enthused about that um but man yeah, tap dancing is something that since for literally 25 years um I have wanted to do, um, which is complicated by the fact that my parents largely thought of dancing as a sin. So <laughs> uh, it was like a, we could all admire Fred Astaire and even like Shirley Temple's skill, mm-hmm. but we don't try to replicate it ourselves. Right. Um, but, but man, tap dancing is, if I could learn to tap dance, um, I don't, I don't harbor any delusions that I could ever be Fred Astaire level, but if I could just like be okay at it, mm-hmm. I would love to learn that dance. Very cool. Don't tell anybody I said that though. Super embarrassing. Yeah. Not, not uh, between you and me. Between you and me and our four listeners. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what about you? What about you? Uh, you know, it's going to seem kind of ironic because of my current, uh, place of employment. Uh, but when I was, when I was really little, I wanted to be a missionary, and so I thought it'd be really cool to uh, be like a pilot missionary and learn how to fly. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I had a, a friend at church. I say he was a friend because he was, but he was probably in his 70s at the time. His name was Sam Cooper, and um, he said his name just like that. <laughs> yep, Sam Cooper. And 
he was he he had his private pilot's license and he loved to fly and so he was kind enough to take me and and pay for me to take uh you know like a preliminary flying lesson uh, at our local airport and it was just so much fun i mean it was it really was it was a blast it's uh it's so different like even like i love traveling and flying commercial is is cool i mean i like the air i like i like going to the airports and getting to your you know destination all that kind of stuff yeah, but yeah. just being in a little uh you know two-person airplane uh or you know something like that and just being able to have the freedom to go up and see the world from a different perspective it's just it's so remarkable so i think i think if i could pick any one thing it would probably be to learn how to fly so yeah it's so much yeah fun. i would i would be terrified man like it took me forever to learn how to drive because for a couple of reasons i didn't care about driving but also that's just so much pressure <laughs> so much responsibility and then you essentially take a car and you put wings on it and you throw it through the air <laughs> yeah well but on the on the on the uh flip side of that there's not nearly as many people to run into that's true that's true so. and uh and, and the uh generally speaking like the the time to correct your error like you know, you swerve the wheel the wrong direction in a mm. car, like the consequences are, are like immediate. Right. And an airplane, theoretically, you might at least have like five or 10 seconds to fix it. For sure. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. You have a little <laughs> bit more space between you and the objects around you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which could be bad or uh, which could be good or it could be bad if there's nothing you can do and you're sitting there waiting. This is true. Um, but. Yeah, and uh, uh, so I, one of the things that I really enjoy about my job now working at the airport is not that I get to fly, but I get to be around that kind of stuff all the time, which is a lot of fun, and uh, I get to see all sorts of neat uh, general aviation planes and experimentals, and uh, it's just uh, it's a lot of fun. So yeah, I would I would love to learn how to do that someday. It'd be it'd be a blast. Yeah. Well, I think the odds of you learning to fly are significantly higher than the odds of me ever learning to tap dance. So <laughs> you've got that going. Don't sell you. yourself short. You, you'll. I mean, you'll get there one day. The only way it would I would ever get there is if I just get to the point where I make enough money being a lawyer that mm -hmm. I can literally like pay a private instructor. Yeah. <laughs> to spend like eight hours a day with me for a span of time. So. Jessica and I are going to come by your house one day when you live like in the Heights and we're going to go into your backyard for barbecue. And we're going to see this, uh, we're going to see this mock set in the backyard built. Oh yeah. Know, with like the, yeah. with the, um, with all the drapery and the lights and everything. And that's where yeah. you'll, you'll practice your, yep, your yep. Fred of stair fourth and I'll be routine. I'll be inside rehearsing his lines that he says right before that. Mm -hmm. If you gone mad, I rehearsed a double dance. That's right. Uh, for those of you listening, you should watch Holiday Inn. It is an there excellent, is one, excellent movie. Yeah. There's like one scene that's in my mind a little unfortunate that reflects on the times. Um, but uh, that's really, I don't really understand. It's like really unnecessary. I don't understand the use of blackface in that scene at all. Um but it's, I mean, it's Bing Crosby, it's Fred Astaire. It, it's just, it's a really great film. We used to watch it every year on Thanksgiving night. It would be like our official transition from Thanksgiving to Christmas. To Christmas. We'll be watching Holiday Inn, so. Yeah, we watched it again really, last really year during the holidays, Jessica and I did. And uh, 
I don't know, there's movies like that that when you go back and watch them, especially if it's only every, you know, for, you know, particular seasons or uh, whatever, that you just, you go back and you watch it and it just never, like, it it doesn't disappoint. Like, it, it, some, like, some movies, like Paul Blart, you know, we went and went back and watched that again the other day. And it's like, (laughs) ah, it's funny, but, like, I'd have been fine if I'd never seen this movie ever again. Yeah, yeah. But then you've got those movies that you can go back over and over and over again and watch. And it just, it never, it never seems to lose whatever it is it has that, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. It's just so, so good. Oh, there are definitely movies, and maybe this would be a fun topic for next time. There are definitely movies that I, I remember loving, or even like TV shows as a kid, I remember thinking were, were great. But now, like, I, I will not go watch them again because I'm, like, I'm 99.9% sure that it was actually terrible. Right. Um, and I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> I know if I go back and watch it now that uh, I'm going to think less of, like, eight-year-old me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and take away that memory. So I'm like, you know what? Just let it live uh, as it does in my in my, uh, in my sure. memory. There's no reason to watch it again. For sure. Okay. All right. So a little bit about the Eastern view of this then, right? Yes, sir. So uh, you were sort of making fun of me and the East before we started recording. <laughs> uh, when I started to talk about this, um, this phrase that I'm, I'm going to give this phrase and I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it a bit, but this, this phrase is probably both kind of the type of thing you were making fun of, but also sort of, thumbs up kind of how I feel about it. Sure. And I will also admit it's, it does, it may not seem super logical, uh, but kind of going back to you were using the phrase, you know, morally justifiable. And I was more using the phrase permissible mm-hmm. in part because of this, this phrase from, uh, from St. St. Ba- uh, Basil um, or Basil, depending on where you're from, I guess says uh, an act of violence contradicts the ethics and principles of the kingdom of God. St. Basil, <clears throat> excuse me. Now I, I'm stuck between pronunciations. St. Basil states that although the act of violence may be required for, and this is when the quote begins, for the defense of the weak and innocent, it is never justifiable. Uh, Our fathers did not consider the killings committed in the course of wars to be classifiable as murders at all on the score. It seems to me of allowing a pardon to men fighting in defense of sobriety and piety. Uh, perhaps, though, it might be advisable to refuse them communion for three years on the ground that they are not clean-handed. So, and and uh, do a little bit of study, like that was sort of the rule in the church. And bad, uh, bad research on my part. I didn't research like the, the time period this was from, so mm-hmm. I can't say that this was the rule of the church pre-schism, uh, but certainly post-schism that. There wasn't while, while there wasn't any condemnation from the church towards Christians who fought in wars, um, they did recognize that it's like it's not ideal that there is sure. sort of a a price to be paid and, and that it was you like communion you you couldn't partake of communion for three years, uh, which um, someone says although that probably seems harsh today it was actually a commonly recognized sign of merciful. Uh, leniency uh, in the ancient rule book of the early church because it, it wasn't dished out as like a punishment like oh you killed a man in war we're going to punish you mm-hmm. but sort of a kind of like the stain of human blood on your hands or on your soul even if it's you were you did it 
uh, sort of in this permissive way. Uh, I think Basil would stop short of calling it justifiable, but but permiss- permitted, um, it doesn't just wash off and, and you sure. can't come to the cup. You can't approach Christ. You can't approach the Eucharist with, with sin on your hands. And so it was almost like, in this sort of inexact way, I guess three years is three years spent. I would assume um, in a devout life, like you can't sure. just like spend three years being a heathen and then come to the cup. But that's sort of how long it takes to get that to get that off of you. Yeah. Again, not in a sense of well, you sinned and now we're punishing you, but just that's how uh, how grave a matter it was. Um, how how serious taking a human life was and, and is to uh, to the Eastern Church. Um, another thing I, I saw was um, the Church forbids uh, the bearing of arms to its clergy and does not allow a man to continue in the ministry who has shed blood. I read somewhere also that if you have ever shed blood, <clears throat> like period, you're not permitted to go into the priesthood. Hmm. Um, which I don't know if that's a, you know, if the, the Catholic Church has that rule or not, um, and that's that's from a while ago that that rule may not really be enforced or in effect um, today in the East. I mean, what I found was pretty recent, so I think it's it's still uh, still in effect. Gotcha. Uh, but as you mentioned, and it talks about in the Gospels, we do not find Christ or John the Baptist, uh, the apostles commanding the soldiers which they met to cease being soldiers. So. We we'd stop short of saying that yes, yeah, soldiering is a sin, sure. but the East certainly recognizes that there's a there's a cost uh, to taking a human life, even if taking the life is permitted, you know, because the government wields the sword and does not wield the sword in vain. It's a terror to those who do evil, um, and so there has to be people that that wield the sword, um, and to a certain logic, like you'd rather have. A Christian doing that than someone who's going to use war as an occasion to, you know, um, give over to bloodlust. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this was something this this phrase here I think sums up a lot of it pretty well, or this paragraph I should say, um, and some of it I've ever since I read it like a month ago, getting ready for this for our initial stab at this has really really stuck with me, not just because of what it says about pacifism. But um, well, you'll probably realize it here in a second when I reading when I read it. Um, it says, "But still, if a man will be perfect and give his life totally to Christ, he will of necessity renounce military service as well as any political service, which always and of necessity is involved with relativistic values and greater and lesser evils and goods. Such a man will also renounce his possessions and follow Christ totally and in everything. Thus, total pacifism is not only possible; it is the sign of greatest perfection." the perfection of the kingdom of God. According to the Orthodox understanding, however, pacifism can never be a social or political philosophy for this world. Although, once again, a nonviolent means to an end is always to be preferred in every case to a violent means. When violence must be used as a lesser evil to prevent greater evils, it can never be blessed as such. It must always be repented of, and it must never be identified with perfect Christian morality. Um, And I think that paragraph that that is that that summation there presents the orthodox view pretty well and and pr- that's pretty much where i am as well and 
pretty much where I was even before I, I started coming into orthodoxy. Um, not even like personally leaning towards pacifism and going that direction, but also to me, it's, it's really, really hard to say, to, to point to a government and say, yes, you as a government should be pacifistic because I'm like, I just don't know how you work that out. Sure. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. Um, I don't even really know how you, how you um, sort of, um, oh, I, I don't know how you, oh, the word just totally flew up the, the backside of my head. Um, how you line that up with what even scripture says about government and, and the government bearing the sword. Uh, to say a government, uh, like a government cannot have an army <laughs> or, or, or can't use violence in any situation. But at the same time, I do think violence needs to be talked about as a as a lesser evil, uh, as a lesser, I don't know, evil may seem like too strong of a word, but that violence is not good, you know, like... Um, I would I would really struggle to ever say violence is morally justified and I'm much more comfortable with the phraseology that violence is sometimes morally permissible mm-hmm. um, but that it why it's why is it fact. why is it permissible because I, 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 I don't know I maybe maybe I'm I'm parsing here I don't know that uh, like yeah, I mean that 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 seems like it could very easily be splitting splitting sure. hairs, right? Like, in our, in my mind, you know, justice um, justice is about bringing order and peace and mm. giving to each one his due, right? It's the way the Catholic Church would put that, uh, from what I understand. So, you know, if someone is doing something that's evil and you step in to correct it and violence is necessary, then it's justifiable, not in the sense that it's that violence is good in and of itself, but that it achieves an end that is good. Mm. Right? That it it's um it is it is striving towards justice or yeah. a balance, uh that each man would receive what his his due. Yeah. So I I don't I don't know if that I don't know if that um I think it makes sense. And I don't know that I would really disagree with that. I might add on to that formulation, sure. but you also, you know me, like I'm of the mind where several words are good, more words are better, right. um, <laughs> um, which, which will no doubt come back to haunt me when I have to trim my appellate brief down to whatever, yeah. uh, to whatever the, the word count is, the word limit is on that thing. Yeah. Um, well, you should really become Catholic then because we use words all the time, like you do. We yeah, define yeah. things till it's dead. Like, uh, <laughs> Man, I'm not going to make the joke I was just about to make there. <laughs> but, uh, but just know you left yourself open, and I, I stayed my hand. Okay. Um, but I, I guess what my hesitation on that uh, that formulation of it would be and I, I don't think this is what you meant or even what the Catholic church means, but I think it can be um, maybe inferred from it is that, you know, violence can't, and, and it's like super obvious, but it, it's, to me, it's one of those things that's so obvious. You have to say it like violence can't accomplish that alone. Like 
rising to meet a, a danger or a threat to and and you're seeking to bring about justice and so you um i would you know violence is the lesser evil to prevent greater evils um like even if a violence rising up stops this threat or 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 ends this injustice I, i'm of the mind yeah I'm sorry. I'm of the mind that that violence is always going to create maybe lesser injustices, smaller injustices in its wake. And then if those are not tended to through like nonviolent, what what I would even call repentance, maybe not repentance in the sense of where we're turning away from this violence because this violence was sinful, Mm. but we're turning away from it because we recognize it's not what we need at this point. We need something else. Yeah, for sure. No, Um, I, I get that. Because I think there's, I see a lot of sentiment, and maybe I, I may see more than, than there is, of, especially like in, in, in um, capital punishment kind of discussions, which is another, another discussion. But the idea of this, this man on death row who's about to be executed, he did a terrible thing, and when we kill him, everyone will feel better and the world will be a better place. Sure. Sure. Like maybe not in so many words, but close to so many words. Sure. And I think that like that's what I really, really hate. Um, I think that's just blatantly not true. Sure. I mean, um, I, I don't think it is. Even if you wanted to argue the death penalty is is necessary or permissible or justified or whatever word you want to throw at it, I, I don't understand at all the the saying that it doesn't it doesn't fix the situation that led that person to do the things that they did it doesn't uh it doesn't bring back the ones that were innocently killed yeah it doesn't doesn't mitigate the fallout sure sure yeah i mean maybe it maybe it prevents other things from happening other crimes that person would have committed but it doesn't do anything to actually heal like it but you know that's a whole different topic i'm sure we'll get to that at some point too but um so that's why I would say that it it, ha- it always has to be repented of, uh, and maybe I need to find a better word than repent, because I don't always think of repentance as meaning what you're turning from is, is a sin, as in when you did that thing, you sinned, although that's like the most common usage. Mm-hmm. But repentance can also have sort of a non-theological meaning or non like moral meaning where we just say it literally means you stop doing that thing sure and you turn you do something else so i i think violence always has to be repented of because there's always a point where you need to stop it sure uh where you have to stop in order to go about you know healing and rebuilding and and trying to put out other fires before they get to the point where they can only theoretically only be quenched with violence again yeah that that was something I was going to say earlier. So some of the what some of the quotes that you read and things, it almost makes it sound like, um, like the way that you view violence, right, as a lesser evil. That mm. that's the way that the church views people that have to use it. That they are they're lesser than people that have chosen not to. And then, but then there's this like, but we need them to do it, right? Like there are times mm. where we need them to do it, but we just can't help it that when we need them to do it, they're just, uh, you know, they're 
they're tainted, they're broken, and we're not. You know, yeah. Does that make sense? Like, I, mean, no, I don't think sense. it's fair. I don't. I don't think that's what you mean, or what any of the church fathers were trying to say. I'm just saying that that's kind of how it to maybe to a modern or Western ears. That's kind of how it sounds. It's like, sure. Okay, well, just like violence is a necessary evil, um, you know, you poor saps that have to do it. You know, we're not going to do it because you know we live for Jesus, um, but we need people to do it. And when you do it, you can't do the things we can. You don't know, like it, it. It comes across <laughs> as a little bit. Um, I don't know. We like somehow in in con- like sort of like elitist in like yes. a, a holy way. Yeah. 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 And I, again, we I, are. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I don't, I don't, I, I also get the feeling that there's some like deep theological, ontological things going on in the argument um, that, that are, that are, you know, philosophically, theologically way deeper than the surface arguments and, or the statements, you know, um, that if if you know we dove into and tried to figure out it would make more sense but just on the surface yeah that's kind of what it sounds yeah. like well i think it it's sort of related to um kind of like what things like i i agree with the idea but you may you probably don't or may not that pacifism you know the the personal commitment to not using violence is is, is striving towards perfection, you know, as is, you know, repenting of materialism. Like we're not trying to single that out, mm-hmm. um, you know, repenting of materialism, repenting of being in politics, which is pro- probably one of the places this hit more home for me um, as somebody who used to and still sometimes thinks about politics. Um, but uh, I, I, reading through what the uh, Orthodox Church has taught about this over the years, and kind of this this attitude of it's like it's permissible, but it's not really what we want. It's not what anyone should want. Kind of reminds me of uh, what Jesus said to the children of Israel about Moses and divorce. Like, yeah, Moses permitted you to do that, but it's not what you should want. It's sure. not what anyone should want. It's not what we're striving towards. Um, and if I did a poor job like conveying that, um, then you know, that's 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 on me because I, I don't think the Orthodox teaching is like well. We need it. Somebody has to do it, but God knows we're too good to get out of that mud. Sure. Um, but more like, look, we're all in this mud. Let's all try to get out of it. Sure. <laughs> you know, kind of a kind of a sense. Uh, but it definitely there's like there's definitely more depth there and more nuance yeah. there. One than, uh, like one illustration that kind of for some reason rings a bell of similarity is when Paul talks about marriage. And how he's like, I wish all men were like I was, right? Free to yeah. serve the Lord, um, free to be dedicated to this. But it's also Paul that says, this is a great mystery. You know, that the love yeah. between a husband yeah. and a wife is something that points us to the love of Christ and his church, right? Mm-hmm. So there's like, there is a, a, a holy calling that is almost better, Right to be completely separated and, and given to God. Um, but at the same time, living life, living normal life, God still moves through that to do 
and to save us, right? Like to, mm. to draw us to himself and we're still loved. And he, uh, not that, not that marriage equates to, you know, killing. I'm not saying that, but I'm just, <laughs> uh, Hey, did you not hear the song at the end of fireproof? Love is not a fight, man. Oh, that's, that's true. <laughs> um, but, but does that, does that kind of like, does that kind of make sense? Like there's, there's a there's a higher good even in you know in the beatific vision right that we will all get to attain to because there's no marriage nor giving in marriage right Mm -hmm. um but on this earth right like it is it is dirty right like there's brokenness here and there are things that god made as good that in their own ways are still not what we're supposed to strive for, you know, like it, yeah. it, that's, yeah. and that's kind of weird and hard to get my brain wrapped around, but it's kind of like, okay, God made marriage. It's good. It's a beautiful thing, but that's not what we're going to have in his presence for all of eternity. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, I think it's, I think it's a really good analogy. Uh, first of all, and I, I a hundred percent agree also that it's so difficult to sort of reconcile in our, in my brain anyway, the idea of God saying, this is a good gift I've given you. We're like, oh, well, good. It's a good gift. And then it's something that we should want, that we should strive for. And then God also saying, but you're not going to have it in heaven. Right. And you're like, well, why? Well, what? Like, how is it? How can something be good and not be in heaven? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know? mean, we um, have, you have, especially, when, especially this thing. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, and you have exactly, um, and you have moments in the scriptures where people rejoice because God gave them victory over their enemies, and mm-hmm. you know all these different types of things uh, where warriors are held in high esteem and uh, all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, the goal is that the swords be hammered into, you know, into to plow Flashers. yeah mm-hmm. and and that's that's the end like that's what we strive that's what we we long for um and we know that that that's god's ultimate end for us yeah but at the same time there is this aspect of in a temporal sense uh we have all these things that some of them aren't as good as others but ultimately god's striving to use all of it to draw us to that heavenly vision Right. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That beauty that awaits us there. I think there's an understanding too that in this world in which we live, if you go ahead and beat your sword into a plowshare, on the one hand, you are trying to image and reflect and sort of um, manifest this perfect will of God because that's. God's at the end of all time. Mm-hmm. That's kind of it's going to be how it is. But with that is this sort of trade-off that when you do that, you're making yourself. If that's the path you choose. You're making yourself vulnerable mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and I don't. And, I, and think, I don't know that everybody's called to that. Exactly. And I think yeah. that's some. I think you see uh, in the New Testament, and even what the, the Orthodox Church teaches, and what the Catholic Church teaches. That's not. Uh, it, it, like if you, if I want to be really specific, which I'll try to be, that's government can't be the can't do that. Mm-hmm. Like if you're the one that's been appointed by God, the entity that's been appointed by God to bear the sword, not in vain, 
God isn't really giving you permission to beat that sword into a plowshare. Right, right. Like the sword of the government, I guess, can't do that. But on the other hand, it may very well be possible that God calls me or God calls you. We get to a point in our relationship with God, not some like sort of higher level of, of holiness, like where if you get to this point, you're better than someone who hasn't gotten to that point because mm-hmm. there's so many different facets. But it's perfectly possible, plausible even, that individual Christians or even groups of Christians do get to that point where they do that. Sure. Um, but again, it doesn't mean you get to look down your nose at the ones who haven't or look down your nose at yeah. a government that God has sort of ordained as bearing sure. a sword at this time. Yeah, so we would, I mean, trying to equate that back to marriage, it would be kind of like the priesthood in the West mm. or the bishopric, or I don't know if that's how you say that, the bishophood in the East, right? Bishops, um, these people that have given their lives to celibacy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to serve the church in a way that nobody else can, right? Like, or has been called to do. And, um, and that's, it's not meant to be, okay, well, we're priests or bishops, respectively, and we're better than anybody else because we're, you know, dedicated solely to serving, you know, the church. But it's mm-hmm. like, but we're here to help the rest of you in what you've been called to do. Yeah. Right. Like, and in the vocation that he's called you to, which is marriage. Right. Um, so there's, you know, we're, we're called to a higher standard of self-denial, maybe, and a harder path of denying ourselves. But it's so that we can help you while you live out your normal life. Right. And yeah, help you yeah. to, you know, to get to heaven. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, I do. And also, I think it's a good place to leave it because we're over time. We're longer than we usually try to go. That's so, true. but it was, I think it was a great conversation. Um, I think both last episode and this episode have been really, really good and given me a lot to think on uh, going forward. So, um, one last announcement, I guess, that our next episode will be episode 10 and it'll be kind of a throwdown episode where we're not going to attack each other's tradition, but we're going to ask more critical questions Mm. of each other's tradition. So um, if you've been listening and you're like, I would just really like for Brian and Adam to just sort of stop being nice and just really admit they disagree with each other on some stuff, (laughs) then good news for you. Episode 10 is going to be that episode. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it, um, not because I, I really just want to tear into Catholicism, but because I, I always, always, always find those types of conversations to be enlightening and, um, and to be definitely worthwhile. So sure. I'm looking forward to it. We will get to that next episode. If you, have any, if you have any questions, like, well, I've always wanted to know this about orthodoxy, or I've always wanted to know that about Catholicism, like, for orthodoxy, why are y'all so weird? And for Catholicism, why are y'all the whore of Babylon? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> then uh, you can always shoot us an email, um, or, uh, or you know, we're on Twitter and we're on Facebook. You can send us a message on either one of those places. Reply to one of our tweets on Twitter, and we'll try to get that question in. Until then, I'm Brian Thomas. I'm Adam Leggett. Thanks so much for joining us. You'll have a great evening, Internet World.